For I have loved my own ghost all these years, till there is nothing to say yes to me, till there is only vast and lightless nothing, and in the heart of it, not even I. O love, let shadows flee, O live sun, living God, incarnate sword of edged reality, let me be hurt, but let me live enough to die. From Prayer Before Day by Joy Davidman Patty Callahan, and this is Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, an in-depth exploration into the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. You'll hear the stories behind the stories of the best-selling novel Becoming Mrs. Lewis, along with interviews from some of the foremost experts on their lives and love. He told us that our mother hadn't simply broken her leg, but she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and wasn't expected to live more than a few days. And my brother looked shocked, of course, and I just didn't know what, what, what was coming next. I, this was like being hit over the head with the hammer. And I was terrified. Episode two, What About the Children? Part two with Douglas Gresham. Today is part two of two, where I'll be continuing the fascinating discussion with Joy's son and C.S. Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham. Douglas, I'm so glad you're back with us today. So let's talk about the time you were at school when your mother was diagnosed with cancer. You have written about this extensively. And one of the things you wrote was, I was a blithe and unaffected boy when I passed over the hospital portal. Can you talk to us about this time in your life? What happened was we, were, we got a letter from Jack saying that we weren't to go back to our house. By this time, we'd moved to Headington in, in um, 10 Old High Street in Headington which is a place I actually loved. It had lots of little, well, it was a small garden, but it had, to me, being quite small at the time, it was, it was a lovely garden with lots of vegetables my mother growing in there and fruit trees and so on. That was a great place. And occasionally we'd go up to the kilns to visit Jack or to play in the woods. But um, got this letter from Jack saying that we weren't to go home to 10 Old High Street when we came back at the end of this term because our mother had fallen and broken her leg and she was in hospital, so we should go and stay at the kilns. And to me, this was like manna from heaven. I mean, this, the kilns is my... My beauty place, it was a lovely, lovely place to be and have, you know, rampage through the, the woods and the, swim in the lake or get stuck in the mud or whatever, have, having a great time rip-roaring around in the, in, the, in the Kilns woods. But that wasn't quite the whole story, of course. I was 10 years old and we got to the Kilns and Jack immediately said to us, right, we'll just go and visit your mother in hospital. And we walked to the hospital. I think it was the, uh, I can't remember which of the, there was a series of hospitals in that area. We walked there. And David was told to show me the way home, but as, as soon as everything was over, he vanished, as, as his usual fashion was. But anyway, we went into the, to the hospital, and Jack took us into a small anteroom that had been led aside, set aside for them, obviously, for him. And he did something which I think was incredibly brave, and for him, it must have been incredibly difficult. He told us that our mother hadn't simply broken her leg, but she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and wasn't expected to live more than a few days. And 
My brother looked shocked, of course, and I just didn't know what, what, what was coming next. I, this was like being hit over the head with the hammer. And I was terrified. And then Jack said he was going to go and visit with our mother. He took us in to meet her mother, of course, and she looked absolutely ghastly. They'd done her hair up in stupid little bows, and, and she was just so ill, so sick. It was terrifying. And I was actually happy to be able to flee and get back out, out of the hospital. I couldn't stand it. And I've had a kind of horror of hospitals ever since then. In any case, um, David had been told to show me the way home, but he didn't. He rushed off somewhere, so I had to find my own way back to the kilns. I suppose it was only a walk of about two or three miles, perhaps the most. But I found myself walking down the pathway which led to the Holy Trinity Church heading the quarry, and I felt completely and utterly alone. You're 10 years old, you don't have a father, you don't have a mother, you don't have anybody you know even. There are no friends, no relatives, no, nobody around that you know and can rely on. I mean, we had some old friends in, in London, but that was not really the right thing at all. I felt completely and utterly isolated. And it's not an experience I would wish on anyone at all, least of all a 10-year-old child. But eventually I got to the gate that led out of the pathway into the churchyard of Holy Trinity Church, Headington Quarry. And suddenly, as I walked through that gate, I lifted the latch, walked out of this world into an entirely different environment. And this is something that's almost impossible to describe adequately. Every leaf on every tree seemed to be burning with an inner light of its own. Every single blade of grass was hyper alive. Every flower was brilliant and, and living things. And I became aware that there was a very holy, very powerful, grieving presence with me in the churchyard. And although I didn't hear words out loud, he said to me, if you can't make it, if you really can't make it without your mother, I can fix it. All you have to do is ask. And that's something that stuck with me all my life. When I'm in trouble, when I'm really in trouble and I need God to help me, all I have to do is ask. And I do these days. In any case, I walked into the church. I wasn't a, a religious child by any stretch of the imagination in those days. I was a rapscallion. But I knelt down <laughs> at the altar rail and I prayed with every fiber of my little 10-year-old being that my mother be allowed to live because I really didn't think I could get by without her. Anybody. I didn't know anybody. There was nobody in the world I could talk, talk to or even say good morning to. I was then let know that it was, you know, he sort of said, okay, it's all over. It's, it's done. I can fix that. Go home and be at peace. But he also let me know that I should keep it to myself at that time which I did. I often wonder why. But in any case, I walked on out of the church, down through the churchyard, still in this hyper-alive, wonderful, wonderful experience of, of the world, as, as it could have been. And then when I lifted the latch and walked out, I walked straight back into the shoddy, dim, dark, dreary land in which we live today. So that was an experience that really kind of shocked me to some extent. Didn't make me turn to Christ, funnily enough. I had a long, long path to walk before I could get to that stage. I didn't know what was happening then. I know absolutely what was happening now. Jesus stepping in when I most needed him, and he's done it several times since then, and in fact, frequently. But at that time, I just went back to the kilns and, and didn't tell anybody and just waited. And a few, few days later, my mother went into remission and stayed that way for four, four and a half, a bit over four years. I think I can't remember the exact dates. But in that four years, she and Jack had the happiest times of either of their lives. So it was well worth having prayed for. They were happy for me in the sense that they were happy and therefore I was happy. I still had my brother to contend with who kept on trying to kill me one way or another. He threw gasoline over me once and tried to strike a match and so forth. But by that time, I was a pretty fast mover and fighter, so I, I could get away from him. Yeah, things, things were, were different. That was a complete change. We lived at the kilns from then on. 
And my mother came home and was being nursed in bed, still expected by the doctors not to live very long. But she recovered completely, went into an amazing remission and lived, as I say, for four years further on. By that time, of course, by the time she was ill again, after the four years, I mean, Jack and my mother had the most wonderful times of either of their lives during that period. Even going to Greece on holiday with Roger Lanson Green and June Lanson Green, his wife, who looked after them right royally, and experiences like that. But uh, we all knew at the time, Warnie loved my mother just as much as Jack did, but in a very different way, if you know what I mean. A completely platonic love. A sister he'd always longed to have and then lost when he found her. It was, it was tragic for him too, uh, her death. But it was, a, it was a good time, oddly enough. Uh, the strangest thing, it was probably the best time of my childhood. That's what I was wondering. Is that kind of reprieve when you're offered it? Does it feel like space out of time? Does it feel like a gift? Everything is more vibrant and alive. You've said that those years began in a haze of happiness and joy for us all. Yes, but it, I knew that it was going to come to an end. I knew this wasn't permanent. I was never told, I was never, it was never, no pretense was made to me by, by Jesus that it was going to go on forever. I knew it wasn't. I knew that I would get from it probably just as much time as I needed. In fact, when she was back in the hospital again at the end of her life, I went to the same hospital and, and went to see her there. And she looked terrible. And the first thing I'd passed the entrance examination to public schools by then. The first thing she said was she congratulated me. I'd moved on to another school, which was much better. But in any case, I came back through the same experience. I'm back through the, the churchyard and through this brilliant, extraordinary hyper-aliveness of everything, and the beauty of everything. And um, he said, you know, if you really can't make it without your mother, I can do it again. But I knew that by that time I had Jack and I had Warney and I had Fred Paxford, you know, good friends and people around the village I'd made friends with and so on. I knew that I could get by without my mother. And I thought it would be really rather presumptuous to ask for the same miracle twice. So I walked past the church, uh, church door and down the path and said out loud, thy will be done. Walked out of the churchyard and back into this shabby world in which we live. And uh, my mother died a few days later. Wow. You have written so many beautiful things about this time. But when, of course, I focus on the things you've written about her, you have said that your mother's courage and her indomitable spirit were the bonding agent of the Lewis household during that time. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, Warney found it incredibly difficult to deal with the fact that he'd found this wonderful sister of a woman who had come into his life in the strangest of ways, and his brother had married her, and what a wonderful household we now had because of that. And when she finally died, he lost it completely for quite a while. He turned to his usual solace, which was alcohol, which never actually helps in the long term. It just helps for a very short period of time. And then you just crash, which he did. But of course, the tragedy for Warney was that, of course, a few years later, just I think nearly two and a half to three years later, Jack died too. But in any case, the, the household was very different after mother had died, but it was still a tight-knit grouping, a happy group in a weirdest way, of three people, two elderly gentlemen and one young boy, and that was the young boy. Where was Davy at this time? He had just gone his own way. He did his own thing. I don't know where he went eventually. He disappeared and went to this college or that college. He went to Cambridge for a while, I believe. Came out with a very poor degree. I lived with Jack and Warney, and the three of us got on exceptionally well together. Jack and I would, would work very tirelessly when Warney was blotto to help him out of it again. It was a difficult time in some ways, but at the same time, it was also a very wonderful time. I learned so much about how to live and how not to live, I suppose, too, which I ignored most of. Yeah, I was still a pretty much a rapscallion. I went to another school after the 
I went to a place called uh, Lapley Grange in, in Machantleth in West Wales for a year, and that was what really got me going again to learn things. And I passed the common entrance to public schools examination, then went to a public school which I found to be utterly atrocious. Probably wasn't the fault of the school, it was probably more my fault than theirs. But the teachers I didn't find to be particularly interesting at all. I did make a couple of friends there. We had a lot of fun blowing things up and things like that. But, but uh, in the end, the school was useless to me. So eventually I went to a, what they call a crammer, which is a school that has very small classes and very good teachers. And I passed everything I needed to to go to an agricultural college, which the one I chose wasn't particularly suitable to my environment. Uh, anyhow, so, um, yeah, all of that time with Jack and Warney after Mother had died, it was not uncommon for someone to ask Jack how he was coping or whatever, and Jack to burst into tears, which I always found in, in A Grief Observed, I think Jack mentions this, uh, and he says it was as if he said something rude when he sort of got tearful about my mother. It wasn't that at all. So the only thing I think about me and my behavior that Jack totally misunderstood, the problem was that English schoolboys don't cry. The first thing you learn when you go to school in England is don't cry, or was in those days. I think it's changed since. But to be found blubbing, as they called it, was the, the, the most degrading thing that could happen to a schoolboy. So I knew that if Jack burst into tears, I would burst into tears, and that would be horribly embarrassing. And uh, Jack didn't really understand that at the time, I don't think, though he should have, having gone through it himself many, many years earlier. It was a beautiful time of life with Jack and Warney and myself, and Fred Paxford, of course, was involved in this too, because he was a huge support to me. And also, I think, to some degree, and a support to Jack at times. But Fred Paxton was our gardener, and he was a fine old man, a, a returned soldier from the First World War. He'd been gassed during the war, and yet he still smoked like a chimney. I've always loved the way you described him in Lenten Lands as a fine man. I think a lot of people know that he was the archetype for puddle gum in, in the Narnia Chronicles. And I can almost see him planting the garden with your mother. I think my mother told Fred how to do it, and he did it that way because she was a bit of an expert. But he was also very pleased when what, what they did worked very well, and he was always very proud of it, which was, which was lovely to see. But Fred was the guy, after my mother's funeral, came back from that, and I just was alone. Jack had gone off because he had to grieve in his way, and nobody else was there except me. It was a bright summer's day, still calm, beautiful summer's day. And I walked alone across, you can't do it now, it's not there, but, but there was a beautiful weeping willow tree opposite the back door of the kilns some distance off. And I walked under the weeping willow tree to a fence that left that led across to what had once been tennis courts. And I was leaning on the fence and I was crying. And suddenly this massive arm descended gently on my shoulders. And it was Fred Paxford. And he said, don't cry, son, it'll be all right. And I turned around to look at him and he was crying too. Oh, Doug, that is so powerful. You're making me cry. Because it was then only, what, two years later that you lost your father? I can't, off the top of my head, recall the dates, but it was about 18 months to two years. I think it was 18 months. I know that your father didn't come visit when your mother was sick and that there was, for a brief time, a dispute over whether he would come to retrieve you when she was very ill. Jack put a stop to that with a rather harsh letter. Did you see your father after your mother died? He came over to Oxford. That was just after mother had died. The plan had been for him to come while she was still alive, of course, but that didn't work. So he wrote to Jack and said, shall I cancel my trip? And Jack said, no, 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 of course, the boys would love to see you. Well, it was true of me. I'm not sure about my brother. But in any case, Dad and I got on very well together. But I was, I think it might have been a, it's kind of disappointing to him. Instead of doing what a young American schoolboy would have done, throw my arms around him, give him a hug, I just walked over to him, held my hand out and said, how do you do, sir? 
And that was English, the English way of doing it. I'd become an English schoolboy. You'd become a proper English boy. Well, not proper, because I was off poaching pheasants and, and rabbits <laughs> and things. But, but we went around, we went to London together and had some adventures there and so forth. And, and when he left, I, I shook his hand again and said, goodbye, sir. You know, it's been nice seeing you. But, I, you know, if I'd been an American child in those circumstances, I probably would have flung my arms around him, gave him a big hug. But I think he was probably a little disappointed in my reactions. I don't know for sure. But, of course, he went back to America and shortly thereafter he, uh, he committed suicide, finding that he had cancer of the tongue and throat at the time. So he didn't last long either. And then, of course, 18 months after Dad, Jack himself died as well. So it was a pretty critical time in my life. It was, it was difficult. It's still difficult to think about, actually, and talk about. When I think about it for you, it feels like the very wound you so poetically describe. You wrote that for the second time in my life, Everything I knew, everything I held dear, and the one person I love had been swept away. No parents, no home, no hope. Those are your words. So there you are. You'd already overcome moving, public school, boarding school, living in London, the Avoca house, and then Hampstead, and then moving to the Kilns, losing your mom, losing your dad, and then Jack. Yeah, Jack left me as well. It was tough. I mean, there's, there's no getting away with it. This sort of thing, no, you can't hide from it. It's just the fact of life, how my life was at that time. And yes, I came pretty close to the idea of suicide. I never accepted it. I was very, very unhappy for quite a while. Then I met a family called the Freeman family who, who lived locally. And um, Ken Freeman was a master plumber. And his children, two girls in particular, Frida and uh, Jean, made me a friend of theirs in a, in a, in a very strong way. And I got to know the family very well and, and began to love them dearly. And, of course, that lasted as long as God needed it to, I guess. And I still, if I run into them at any time, well, I know the, the parents are now long dead, I suppose, but I know that um, Ken is anyway. But the, the children are still around, and I occasionally, very occasionally, once every blue moon, get a chance to chat to them. But I moved on into a different sphere at that time because after Jack died, of course, my mother's best friend in England, Jean Wakeman, who was a motoring journalist, gave me a home to live in, which she'd promised my mother she would after Jack had died. And incidentally, Don, uh, Ron Tolkien came walking into the hospital one day uh, after I was coming out having visited Jack. I didn't know Jack was dying. That was the worst thing about it. I had no expectation of him dying. I thought he was just ill. And Tollers stopped me in the street and said, you, you know, you wouldn't remember me, uh, Douglas. But I said, well, of course I remember you, Professor Tolkien. And How could you not know who Tolkien was, right? He hadn't seen me for a long time. He assumed that I'd forgotten probably, but... He said, look, you know, if anything happens to Jack untoward and you haven't got anywhere to go, you can come and live with me. And that was a wonderful thing for him to say, admittedly, but it also torpedoes the idea that certain biographers have come up with that Jack and Tollers fell out with each other in the last years of their lives. That's complete bollocks, if you excuse the, the very British expression. He was, in fact, Jack's best friend right through to the end of Jack's life. One of his sons used to go and visit, one of, one of Toller's sons, I forget which one, now, used to go and visit Jack every week. And I think Toller's used to go along too. Toller's used to visit him every week. So all that stuff is complete nonsense, fabricated by, probably, uh, in my opinion, fabricated by biographers who don't have enough to say, so they sort of just add a bit here and there, which I don't think ever really works properly. Anyhow, many biographies today that I've read seem to tell me more about the writers of them than they do about the subject of them. And your book is an exception, which I appreciate. Oh, Doug, thank you so much. That means more than I can say. 
I often say when people ask why I wrote it this way instead of as a biography, it's because I wanted to get behind her eyes. I wanted to write it from her point of view. I wanted to write it from the seat of her heart as much as I could. Not from what I thought about her or what other people thought about her. I wanted to hear from her. So thank you for saying that. But back to you. So there you are in a total state of despair after Jack's death. Where did you go? To your mother's best friend, Jean Wakeman's house? Am I right about that? I moved in with Jean and into the coldest room I've ever lived in in my life, by the way. But they did the best they could. There was Francis Jones and his wife, Elise Jones, lived in the house as well. In fact, um, Jean was supporting them by that stage. But it was difficult. Um, I went down to... I hadn't been there very long. I was working at a local pig farm at that stage, uh, uh, training to be a pigman. And I'm pretty good with pigs, by the way. I wound up going down, being sent, because the agricultural college required you to have 18 months, a minimum of 18 months practical work at farms before you went to the college. Some people across the road from Jean's house told her about their cousin who had a farm in Somerset, a beautiful part of the world. And uh, he would probably take me on as an agricultural student for you know, six months or whatever. So they got in touch, and yes, Sir Edward Mallet and his wife, Lady Mallet, owned the farm. So I went down there and made a bit of a fool of myself, saying I'd think it over. <laughs> but I did go there and, and stayed there for six months. And I think it was probably in the middle of the winter. It was bitterly cold, if I remember rightly. <laughs> One day for breakfast time, Lady Mallet walked into the breakfast room, the main dining room, waving a piece of paper. And she said, oh, Doug, you'll love this. Mary's coming to stay. And I said, well, who's Mary? She said, she's our niece. She comes from Tasmania. I'd never heard of Tasmania. I said, well, how old is she? And they said, well, she's 21. And I said, well, she's much too old for me then. And Harry piped up their son and said, no, no, anything with trousers on is good enough for Mary. Anyhow, uh, Harry and I were then deputized to go off to Taunton in the car, the big car they had. It was a lovely Riley Pathfinder, beautiful car. And we were to have our hair cuts first and then go and wait at the railway station for the train and pick up these two girls, Mary and her friend, who were coming to stay. Yogi was her nickname. So we were standing there on the railway platform, smoking Harry's cigarettes and being very, being very bored, quite frankly, and cold. And the train arrived, and lots and lots of people got off that train. And through them all, I saw a girl whom I'd been looking for all my life. It was strange, because when I was a little boy, I had no one to play with. My brother was dangerous. So I invented in my mind the sort of girl I would want to play with if there was one. It wasn't like an imaginary friend. I didn't talk to her or anything. I just imagined what she'd be like. And as I grew up through the various stages and trials and tribulations and so forth, and joys, of course, of my life, I still longed to have this one little person with me who was then, of course, the old age that I was too, or older. And I knew what she'd sound like, what she'd like to, to play with and, and what she'd like to do and all of that kind of thing. I knew a lot about her personality, having, having invented her, I suppose. And I was still, I started looking for this girl quite consciously and never found her. We were standing on the railway station platform on a cold winter's day. And I saw a girl step off the train. And I turned, a blonde girl, and I turned to Harry and said, Harry, see that girl over there? He said, which one? There's dozens of them. I said, the blonde one. He said, what about her? I said, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And he said, don't be stupid. That's my cousin. But there she was, your wife. So anyhow, it took me three and a half years and cost me every cent I had in the world, by the way, to persuade Mary that it would be a good idea to marry me. And after three proposals and lots of other things, she finally said yes. Well, I don't know whether she thinks it was a good idea, but, well, we've been married for 52 years, so <laughs> it must have been a reasonably good idea. 
So that was the start of a new chapter in my life, that realization that this girl I'd been looking for my, all my life really did exist and still does exist. So where did y'all move after you married? Because you married quite young. We went to Tasmania. Well, young, I suppose that's, you know, that's a matter of opinion as to how young you are when you marry because back in the good old days, people got married when they were 15. But then, of course, you weren't going to live to be much more than 45, I suppose, so you had to hurry it up. I was 21 when we got married, and I was 22 when my first son was born. Doug, I want to talk about your mother's writing, her poetry, her novels, her essays. It's a lifetime study just to read all of her work. Don King has spent numerous years studying her work and publishing it so that we can all read it. Did you read her writing when you were younger, or did you wait until she was gone? Was her language and her poetry and her vivid imagination a part of your childhood, or was that something you only realized later? I didn't know she was a poet, and I didn't know that she'd wrote, written heaps and heaps of poetry. I'd read her novels, Anya and Weeping Bay, for example, and I read Smoke on the Mountain when I was still quite young, I mean, when she was still alive, and liked them enormously. Um, I didn't put them on the same level as Jack's because her, her novels were very uh, much immature work at the time. Later on, of course, when she wrote Smoke on the Mountain, she'd matured a great deal. And I think that's the best book she ever wrote. But I had no idea about the poetry until... After Jean Wakeman's death and I was set to clean out the house, I came across this box of everything, which I then turned over eventually to the Wade Center in uh, Wheaton College. And that's where everybody's getting the, uh, the poetry to read now. But I'm not actually a, a particular aficionado of poetry at all. I rather think that poetry is farting around with words where prose is making them work. I do write some poetry, I must confess, usually for fun. And it's usually... Turned out to be quite good stuff, other people say. I'm not quite sure whether it's good or not. But my prose, I think, is probably better than my poetry. Well, I quite like your prose. The other thing that everybody always asks me is, are their letters to each other really gone? Of course, I want to know, because what a treasure if we had them. I'll tell you exactly what happened to them. I had a collection of letters that Jack had written to my mother, which she had kept. We were staying at it for a while, um, having sold our first little farm. We stayed with a chap called, I um, can't remember his name now, but anyway, uh, his first name, but uh, I'm not going to give you his second name. Anyway, he had this little shed where we had a car we kept a big caravan, what you call a house trailer, next to it. Lived there for a while while Mary was pregnant with Dominic until he was born and ready to rock and roll, as it were, because we were heading off around Australia. But anyhow, we had this large chest of materials and bits and pieces and swords and things of mine, and we didn't want to cart them all around Australia in the caravan. So he said, all right, no problem. Leave them in my shed. They'll be safe there. Well, he sort of got sick of it being in the shed, so he moved the whole lot up to a very small shed up on the hill away from sight. It was raided by vandals, and all of those letters were destroyed. Oh, that hurts. It did hurt. It hurt me. And it hurt me also the fact that the, christ the beautiful christening mug that uh, James's godfather had given him, silver mug, beautiful thing, that was destroyed or, or stolen. It wasn't destroyed. I think it's, it's probably still out there somewhere with James Edward Lindsay Gresham written on it. The trunk was smashed to pieces. Everything in it was, was hard. Most of the things in it were destroyed too. The farmer concerned managed to salvage a few bits and pieces, but the most vital things were all um, either taken away because they were valuable or just destroyed for sheer vandalism. It's a sadness in Mary and my life and has been for many years, but we've moved on from there. It's a, it's a different world now. Yes, it is. Before they were destroyed, before you packed them up, did you ever sit down and read them, or were you just saving them? Never had the time. I was farming, and then moving, and so on. So I thought, someday I'll get busy and I'll read these, but I just never got to. 
Doug, you have been so generous with your time and with your insights. So I want to ask you this last question. What do you think is the most profound lesson you learned from C.S. Lewis and from your mom and their love story? It feels as if God wrote that love story, as if all of their past and everything that happened to them in so many ways brought them together for each other. Yes, I think that's probably true. Everything they ever did and everything that happened to them led to what eventually came of them. That's That's a very difficult question. But the thing is, the thing I learned most about Jack and my mother is their courage. And the fact that courage doesn't mean riding into battle on a charger with a spear in your hand and a sword at your hip. It doesn't mean facing up to an enemy who's armed if you're not or whatever that might be, all that sort of thing. It doesn't mean facing up to bullies when you're a little boy. Courage is far, far deeper than that. Courage is facing absolute tragedy bravely and not letting it get you, get you ruin you, not letting it destroy you. Well, Doug, I will let us end on that beautiful note that their life taught you some courage and taught you by example what courage actually is. I could talk to you for another five hours and ask you questions and listen to your stories. Next episode, we'll dive deep into the question that arises again and again. Did C.S. Lewis lose his faith after Joy died? We'll be talking to Dr. David Downing, the co-director of the Wade Center, and we'll be looking at his essay called A Grief Obscured. Make sure to subscribe to Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold, published by HarperCollins' Thomas Nelson. You've been listening to the Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast, copyright 2019 by Thomas Nelson, based on the book Becoming Mrs. Lewis, The Improbable Love Story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, copyright 2018 by Thomas Nelson. Poetry selections by Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, read by Liz Hill and Simon Bubb. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the publisher. For more information on the people and stories featured in this episode, please visit becomingmrslewispodcast.com. This program was engineered by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at Kingswood Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, and produced by Jolene Bartow and Gabe Wicks.